Oh, Dobby boy, the socks, the socks are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the mandrakes crying. It's you, it's you, must go and I must bide. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow, or when the valley's hushed and white with snow. Tis I'll be here. <laughs> Tis I'll be here. I was getting it. it earlier. I can get it. Tis. Is I'll be here with horcruxes or hallows. Oh, Dobby boy, oh, Dobby boy, I love you so. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for ballad ears. I think we ought to say something, piped up Luna. I'll go first, shall I? Thank you so much, Dobby, for rescuing me from that cellar. It's so unfair that you had to die when you were so good and brave. I'll always remember what you did for us. I hope you're happy now. Goodbye, Dobby, he said. It was all he could manage, but Luna had said it all for him. Hi, Quibblers. Before we get started on this episode, clearly it's been a while, So we wanted to just check in with you all for a moment and say, first of all, the episode you're about to hear was recorded months ago, honestly, or at least six weeks ago. So probably mid-May. Before the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent uprisings against anti-black racism and police brutality and racial injustice in this country, And also, this was recorded before J.K. Rowling went fully off. So anyway, this might feel like it was recorded in another universe, but we did want to tell you all that we have been thinking a lot and we are going to finish this book. We are committed to this project and to you and to this community. And we have really complicated feelings about the concept of the death of the author and we have really complicated feelings about what it means to engage with art made by people who are not aligned with our values and do not believe what we do about human rights and human dignity and we believe that black lives matter and we believe that trans lives matter and we are still going to do this. So hopefully that works for all of you and hopefully we can continue to bring both a critical lens and a gimlet eye and the ability to laugh pretty hard at this ridiculous series to the project but anyway we just wanted to tell you that and we also wanted to say thank you so much for all of the donations that you made if you aren't following us on social media we did put out a call for folks to donate to local bail funds or Black Lives Matter affiliates or support networks for trans folks and specifically trans folks of color. So we got 
more than 50 donations. Um, You all donated thousands of dollars to organizations across the country and all over the world. We love you and admire you. And we have put out the first of the promised Supercut summaries. And we are working on the other ones. But we appreciate that. And certainly, you know, keep keep giving of your time and your talents and your hearts. And we know that you all are out here or in here, depending on your pandemic stage, giving of your whole hearts. This was a little rambly, but I just wanted you all to know what was going on. We are in it to win it. We love this community and we are going to do our best. So enjoy an episode. Hopefully this episode holds up. Yeah. We will talk to you on the other side, friends. Thanks, amigos. Oh, wait, that's for the end. Well, now it's at the beginning. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And I'm not sure what that's going to sound like on the recording, but I was impressed. That might make people's ears bleed. You have nice tone. (laughs) The pitch 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 might be a little off. Question mark, question mark, question mark. But I don't know, for having no pitch pipe and just winging it <laughs> was prettier than I could have done. Anyway. I just think about Moira Rose. <laughs> Daddy, Daddy boy. boy. <laughs> um, wow. Okay, we are reading Harry Potter. And the Deathly Hallows. We are once again recording from a second location, which is my family home in Arizona. So please forgive dogs barking, families familying. There are more people here than we are used to. And, you know, everybody's quarantining and shit is weird. So it might sound like that is true. Anyway. I'm sure that's fine with you. This week we are reading the very, very, Very good chapter, one of the best golden chapter of Deathly Hallows called The Wand Maker. As usual, spoilers and cursing, we find out a lot of new shit and uh, we'll talk about that fact. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are triage, grave digging, grave robbing, assembling a crack team, and exit interviews. Alex, my dear, my troubadour, <laughs> what happened this week? I feel like I should make up for last week's super long summary with like maybe an actual one minute one. What do you think? No, I, people would hate that. I don't think it's possible. But anyway, maybe keep it a little shorter than Two last minutes. time. Two minute summary. Let's shoot for 10. In this week's chapters, Dobby gets buried, Harry interrogates Griphook and says he needs to break into Gringotts Bank, and then he talks to Ollivander about wands, and Voldemort gets the Elder Wand from Dumbledore's grave, and that's what happens in this week's chapters. I mean, yeah, that was It's not as fun. No, it's not as fun at all. Also, it's one chapter, just (laughs) uh, as a reminder. What a... That was a failed experiment. Okay. Not really. You said what happens. Yeah. Did I miss anything? There's some like... Nuance. Yeah, there's nuance. Okay. Let's go for a happy medium. In this week's chapters, Harry wraps Dobby in his jacket and... Because, oh yeah, Dobby's dead. 
FYI, remember everyone, Dobby, uh, Dobby has fallen. Man, remember when that happened? Jeez Louise. Yeah. This oh. one I cried even harder in. This one's even sadder. Before, before Harry wraps Dobby in his jacket, he has to pull the knife out of his chest, so. Yeah, oh. that's, that's pretty rough. What do you think happens to the knife? I don't, I can't get into the knife again. I do don't they, know. They should keep it. I mean. It's handy, as <laughs> Bellatrix has taught us. Anyway, while Harry is wrapping Dobby in his North Face funeral shroud, he dimly feels Voldemort punishing those left behind at Malfoy Manor, but it feels like really far away. J.K. Rowling describes it like he's looking through the wrong end of a telescope, which is a pretty cool uh, metaphor. Or is it, I think it's a simile in this case. It's yeah, it's also it. pretty common. I just, I liked it. Or the dis, it's like a distant storm that he can like hear way far off. So Lovo's mind is getting like further away from Harry's or he's like able to shut it out more. Uh, Harry feels like it's grief driving Voldemort out. But then he thinks to himself that Dumbledore would have said it was love. Because, you know, that's what Dumbledore always says. Boo! Harry, <laughs> Harry tells the others at Shell Cottage that, oh, it turns out they're Bill and Fleur. They did make it to the right place. It's Shell Cottage. Harry wasn't sure at first, but it's Bill and Fleur's new love nest, which is soon to be converted into a funeral home. Slash, like... Battlefield Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> it is not a honeymoon anymore. No. Harry tells the others that he wants to bury Dobby, but he wants to do it properly, he says, not by magic. That's a direct quote. Harry feels a strange kind of relief while he's digging Dobby's grave. He feels like every drop of sweat is like a gift to the house elf, and it just, like, he's getting the let out. While he's digging, he's mulling over his Hallows or Horcruxes dilemma. Eventually, Ron and Dean join to help out. It's like the most Dean's ever fucking done in these books. Besides, uh... Make out with Ginny a besides bunch. Besides make out with Ginny a bunch. So, Harry wraps Dobby even more snugly in the jacket. Ron strips off his socks and puts them on Dobby's feet. Dean takes out a woolen hat for Dobby's head, and Luna suggests that they close Dobby's eyes. So she closes Dobby's eyes and said, Now it looks like he could be sleeping! No. Cry now. Cry later. Cry forever. We haven't said that in a long time, but boy, howdy, does it apply. <laughs> Harry thinks to himself how unlike Dumbledore's funeral this whole arrangement is. There's no dignitaries. Everybody, there's... Not like a white marble tomb, and that it's fucking tragic. So Harry reflects on the grinding inequality of the wizarding world for a moment. Luna says, We should say a few words. She says, Thank you so much, Dobby, for rescuing me. It's fucking sucks that you had to die. It's unfair when you were like good and brave, and I'll always remember what you did for us. I hope you're happy now. Mourn you till I join you. <laughs> or something like that. That's not a direct quote. All Harry can do is choke out a thick goodbye to Dobby, but he thinks to himself that Luna has said it all. Because Luna is fucking emotionally aware. Yeah, and very articulate. She's one of those characters that could just always be the unsung hero. Yeah, we have to... Like, every chapter she's in, she Actively she's choose yeah. to not make it Luna every time we do it. 
Once we're back inside the cottage, we learn that the other Weasleys have gone into hiding at Aunt Muriel's, which is protected by the Fidelius Charm, and Shell Cottage is also protected by the Fidelius Charm, which has a perfect record of safety in these books. Not at all. Yeah, works uh, super <laughs> duper well. Totally fail safe. <laughs> and Mundungus Fletcher's the secret keeper. <laughs> thought about Mundungus Fletcher in so long. What's that guy up to? God, what a shitbird. <laughs> Bill says they should move Griphook and Ollivander and the others to Muriel's, but Harry says he needs to question them first, and Harry, he hears, like, authority in his own voice, and he sees that that sense of purpose, like, has come to him, like, while he was digging Dobby's grave. So, that's deep. Like Dobby's grave. Actually, Dobby didn't really need a deep grave. He's not that large, right? Yeah, but you still have to bury... You don't bury people just the shallowness of their bodies. I've never dug a grave before. I mean, you know the tomb's six feet under, though. I think I have dug a grave for a cat. That's not true. Okay, well, that doesn't count. It's not a person. Yeah, anyway. But the phrase six feet under exists for a reason. Mm. Yeah, I guess you're right. You gotta get, like, below the, like, topsoil. I don't know why that. I'm not a grave digging expert. All I know is that graves are deeper than you'd think. Harry, he's thinking to himself more about Dumbledore and how Dumbledore predicted that Wormtail would have this like shred of regret in his mind that would make him dangerous to Voldemort. And also that Dumbledore, how Dumbledore knew that Ron would need to find a way back. And that's why he gave him the Deluminator. So he's wondering to himself, like, what did Dumbledore know about me? And I really like this line, Dumbledore, Harry says to himself, am I meant to know, but not to seek, in reference to the Deathly Hallows? I like that a lot. Just saying. Honestly, this chapter holds among J.K. Rowling's best writing in the series, shockingly. There's some actually nice sentences here, and we don't talk about these books at the sentence level very often, for a reason. (laughs) But there are some lovely turns of phrase. So Harry feels that there's this tremendous import in who he questions first, and he decides that he's going to talk to Griphook first. I don't know why the order of who he talks to is so important, but he, that seems to like be the stand-in for whether he goes after the Hallows or the Horcruxes. I mean, I think that's literally what it is. Yeah, but like, honestly, he could talk to them in any order he wanted, but whatever. We all make meaning in our own way. So anyway, Harry goes to Griphook, who you might recall from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was the goblin who gave Harry his key when he first went to his vault at Gringotts. Griphook says, yeah, I remember, even among goblins, you were very famous. He also says, you buried the elf. You're a, you're a weird guy, Harry yeah, Potter. He's like, you're a weirdo. Yeah. I don't really know what to do with you, friend. <laughs> I am not sure what to he's make of your whole deal. Yeah. You're very extra, Harry Potter. Uh, Ain't it the truth. Oh, shit, I forgot to say, speaking of graves, Harry took a stone from, like, the sea and put it on Dobby's grave. He didn't take it from the sea. Okay, near the sea, sea adjacent. Harry finds a big rock and (laughs) carves with a wand, his wand. Here lies Dobby, a free elf. So... Actually, very notably not with his wand. But oh, yeah. we'll get to that later. Yeah, not his wand. But here lies, Do- here lies Dobby, a free elf, is, again, one of the nicer kind of 
you know, not even Whoa, really a Whoa, it's the but... Malfoy wand that carves it. Oh, that's fun symbolism. Dang, dude. Whoa, He uses blown. Draco's wand to the... write Here Lies Dobby a Free Elf. I'm the fourth panel in that brain explosion meme right now. That's <laughs> galaxy me. Brain. I am galaxy brain. <laughs> There's a bunch of birds out there. Well, this Guys, house... remember Loud Bird? Right now, in where we are in Phoenix, Loud Bird is like a hundred of them. There's also like bird feeders just surrounding this house. My there's mom's like a obsessed with birds. Of bird feeders. There's a lot of bird feeders. Anyway, there's like some cute ass finches or something out there. I went birding this morning. What'd you see? Um, some cactus wrens. And? And a vulture. And? Some other stuff. Oh, I saw a verdin, which are these little yellow birds. I saw it go into its house. That's awesome. It went into its nest. That I love verdins. Cool. It was building it. Did you see any shrikes? No. My mom loves shrikes because they kill their babies. <laughs> no, that's not actually why. They're just pretty. Also, I don't think they kill their babies. Shrikes do impale their food on spikes. We have some serious birders who listen to the pod, so I'm sure we'll hear. Yeah, no. I think that the shrike killing her babies is actually just a Sylvia Plath poem. And even then I might be wrong, but my mom really likes strikes. Anyway, Harry tells Griphook that he needs to break into Gringotts, cause what would this book be without one last caper? They, one I last... thought I was out, but <laughs> they pulled me back in. <laughs> one last slow grift. Such a good heist. We have a really good heist coming up for us. <laughs> Dragon heist. Oceans three. <laughs> I guess it's four. four. Yeah, because they have to take Griphook. Never mind. Oceans four. Isn't Griphook going to betray them? I forget the mechanism for that, but I think he does them dirty. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. There's some Griphook shenanigans upcoming. Ooh. Anyway, Griphook says that's impossible. You've got no chance. Didn't you read the inscription on the floor, which like says like thief you've been warned, like don't fuck with us. Harry's like, I don't really pay attention to the built environment. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, we've all seen like inscriptions on banks. No one was like, oh, that's like a quote from Aristotle or whatever. I mean, I don't know. Also, Harry sort of blends just into the scenery. deeply doesn't attend. Also, Harry just deeply doesn't pay attention to either rules or warnings of any kind. Well, to be fair, Harry should be like, yo, I was like 11 and I had just learned there were wizards like the day before. I was absorbing a lot of information at the time. Well, also <laughs> that exact day they were like, oh, you can't break into Gringotts. Oh, wait, somebody super duper just did. There was a full on breakout break in. There was also a breakout of Azkaban, but that was later. But right, same thing. They were like, oh, you can't break out of Azkaban. And people were like, say. <laughs> so none of these rules are real. That's true. Yeah, I think I was just reading that chapter again, uh, where they go to Gringotts for their first time. And Hagrid says, like, it's the safest place for anything besides maybe Hogwarts. And it's like, well, it's like, we wow. just got the Elder Wand from Hogwarts and we're <laughs> about to get some Horcruxes from Gringotts. So fuck you guys. So... Harry's like, I'm not seeking a treasure for myself. So technicality, dude. Uh, <laughs> technically, it's not robbing the bank. It's uh, 
we're just making a illicit withdrawal. I don't know. Uh, we're borrowing from it. I mean, to be fair, Gripple also gets really defensive about the fact that Gringotts was robbed that day Harry was there. And, I mean, Harry should also shoot back here and be like, dude, you guys give, like, bank withdrawals to, like, just random cats that walk in. <laughs> Remember? Yes. He had done... Fucking serious, like sets up Crookshanks. A bunch of money to Crookshanks, the cat from the vaults. Because he like had the key around his neck or some shit, like a bell. From the vault, like this must be legit. A wanted criminal, you know, not a wanted criminal, like a convicted in Azkaban criminal. Yeah, like from the Black Family Vault. Hello, I am a cat. Please give me money for <laughs> that is set aside for Ted Bundy. Thank you so yeah. much. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm not bringing it to him, I promise. So I mean, look, I get that Griphook is like proud of his work, but the security measures are sus. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Gringotts would totally lose your, like, personal information in a hack. Yeah. Eminently breachable. Yeah, totally. Gringotts is, like, fucking Experian or whatever. <laughs> so, anyway, Griphook says, okay, if there's one wizard I would believe wanted to, like, rob Gringotts for altruistic purposes, it would probably be you, Harry Potter. Because goblins and elves aren't used to protection or respect from wizards, which you have shown this night. And he calls wizards wand carriers. Harry's like, say what? And Griphook explains that the right to carry a wand has long been denied by wizards to goblins and other magical creatures. And Ron then protests, well, you can do magic. Goblins can do magic without wands. And Griphook says that is immaterial. And then Ron shoots back that, well, goblins don't shared your secrets either about how to make like super cool metal things and that's not a secret that's a trade yeah <laughs> like just too Ron, lazy just to look it up learn metal no, you know they can make like horcrux smashing mega swords it doesn't cr- smash the horcruxes because of the blade it's because it's imbued with the basilisk venom right but it was able to like absorb the power Again, of the basilisk this venom. is something that is just a skill no, goblin-made armor is, like, it's a real thing. I but. know. But, I mean, Ron's like, why don't you teach us how to make swords? And Griphook's like, go on YouTube, bro. <laughs> like, it's all there. Anyway, uh, Harry says this isn't about goblins versus wizards. Griphook says, yes, it is. Griphook's like, the Dark Lord, the Dark Lord's rising. Shit's getting bad for house elves, goblins, etc. And the wizards aren't protesting. Hermione says, we protest. I'm a mudblood. I'm just as hunted as you are. And we all need to, like, work together. So Griphook also looks at Hermione curiously. And he says that he'll think over their proposal. Uh, Harry then tells Ron and Hermione that he thinks there's a Horcrux in Bellatrix Lestrange's vault. Even if Bellatrix doesn't know exactly where it is, he thinks Lovo would have thought it'd be pretty dope to have a vault at Gringotts. Since he wasn't born rich. Uh, then they go to interview Ollivander. Harry asks Ollivander to mend his wand. Ollivander says, I'm sorry, it's too damaged. Harry then asks Ollivander to examine the two wands that he took from Malfoy Manor, which turn out to be Bellatrix's, and as we discussed earlier, Draco's. Interestingly, Ollivander says this wand was the wand of Draco Malfoy. Harry catches on to 
the what, the subtext, this grammatical hints, and says, well, what do you mean was? So it turns out, Ollivander explains, that if you defeat a wizard and take their wand, you can win the allegiance of that wand. So Ron has also won Wormtail's wand, so he's got a new wand now. Yeah, and they're not, like, perfect, but they'll sort of do, yeah. and they'll get used to you, and they'll get better, I guess. Yeah. Kind of like a seeing eye dog. Yeah, we also learn it's not... That was... <laughs> that's, doesn't, that's not a good metaphor at all. Well, but, you know... And it's not your dog, and you get a different dog. Like, seeing eye dogs are well-trained and can sort of do their tasks effectively, but they get better when they get used to your sort of, like, patterns, and mm. they, they are... Yeah, they get more skilled as they become sort of like emotionally closer with their humans. It actually was a fine metaphor. Yeah, I guess you're except right. that dogs are beings and also the shit. Way better than wands. Yeah. Dogs are better than wands and most things in general. We also learned that it's not necessary to kill to take possession of another wand. So then the conversation eventually turns to the elder wand. Because Harry asked if it's necessarily necessary to kill uh, to get a wand. Uh, Ollivander gets really freaked out because he doesn't know how Harry knows about this. Uh, to be fair, Harry has a truly astounding amount of information and insight here. That's true. Harry tells Ollivander that he knows that Lovo is looking for the Elder Wand because he wanted to know why he couldn't beat Harry's old busted Phoenix Wand. Ollivander protests that Lovo tortured him. He's like, you have no idea what that's like. Harry's like, excuse me, bud? yo, dog. (laughs) Uh, You want to talk about torture, friend? (laughs) It is actually really annoying that Ollivander is like, you don't understand Cruciatus. And Harry's like, do you know how many people have done the fucking Cruciatus curse on me, brother? I call Cruciatus a Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that Ollivander doesn't think Harry Potter has been in, like, pain. I mean, look, Ollivander's in rough shape. No, I know. He's feeling real, he's feeling really bad right now, like, really guilty. But his excuse making is pathetic. It's not, well. Hermione Granger holds up under torture. That's true. And just not only holds up, but tells an incredibly good lie. But if we're all supposed to be Hermione Granger... Well, we're all failing, but still, I mean, we can have a it's bar. a high bar. Yeah, we can have a bar we aspire to. Ollivander doesn't meet it. Anyway, Oliver, Ollivander says that, yeah, Lovo wanted to know everything he could about the Elder Wand, also known as the Death Stick. Which is so phallic. And the Wand of Destiny. Harry says Lovo's gonna know soon that his, my wand is busted beyond repair because they're gonna like do priori incantatum on the other wands that we left back at Malfoy Manor and I just more wand logistics. It's weird that every wand has like a black box. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. But it's a Oliv- really useful way to like recreate battles. Yeah, seriously. But Ollivander says the Dark Lord doesn't just want the Elder Wand to beat Harry. He thinks it's gonna make him truly invincible and then Ollivander says that's pretty fucked up but also kind of cool you love to see it yeah he's like it'd be interesting to say the least yeah he says the idea of the dark lord in possession of the death stick is formidable Ollivander also says he's sure that the elder wand exists and 
he was the one who told Lord Voldemort that Gregorovich, a.k.a. Greg, had it. At least that was the rumor. So at some point, Gregorovich got the Elder Wand. Who the fuck knows how? Do we and know then, how? No, but then Grindelwald But then Grindelwald stole it. Stole it and of course, but 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 motherfucking Dumbledore defeated Grindelwald in the famous duel that we learned about first on a chocolate frog card. <laughs> That's right. Which is awesome. So Albus Dumbledore is the true possessor, champion, owner guy of the Elder Wand, and ownership died with him. Or so we think. So we think. Oh, Harry also asked Ollivander about the Deathly Hallows. Ollivander's like, what the fuck are you talking about? They leave Ollivander to get some rest. While all this is happening, Harry starts having visions of Voldemort, who is at the gates of Hogwarts. Harry tells Ron Hermione all this about Dumbledore, that Dumbledore has the Elder Wand, and it's at Hogwarts. It's buried with him. Ron says, well, we should go there and get it right now. Harry says, it's too late, bro. Voldemort's already there and he's going to take the Elder Wand, but that's okay. Our job is to destroy the Horcruxes. That's what Dumbledore wants. Harry then succumbs to his visions. He sees Lovo telling Snape that he'll be like back up at the castle in a minute. It's funny that like Lovo like checks in on Snape. No, Snape lets him in. Oh, Snape lets him in. Why does Snape, why does Lovo need to like knock? Well, because there's all these charms and yeah, shit. Yeah, I guess you're right. Never mind. It's like really hard to get into Hogwarts. <laughs> Turns out. It's like a vampire. He like needs to be invited mm. in. I don't know. I'm making that up. So Lovo is by himself after taking leave of Snape on the castle grounds. He casts a delusionment, disillusionment charm on himself so that nobody can see what he's up to. And he goes to Dumbledore's grave, cracks it all open with his wand. He lolls at Dumbledore for looking so dumb, being like a dead body just sitting there. <laughs> he literally does. He's like, ha ha, you look dead. so stupid yeah. and dead, dumb. idiot. Yeah, and thinks to himself, why was Dumbledore so stupid to just leave the wand here? Did he think I'd be like scared of a gravestone? Ha ha, this is easy. So he takes the wand from Dumbledore's grasp, and it emits like sparks from its tip. Quote, ready to serve a new master at last. Unquote. And that's what happens in this week's chapter. This is not a chapter I remember really vividly from my first read. I actually think I remember the visuals of the movie from this chapter better. But returning to it, I mean, you were sitting across from me. I was was reading. I responded with really strong emotions yeah to this chapter and not just because like boohoo dobby died like it's really sad but the a lot of the sort of the festivities is the wrong word but the way dobby's burial is handled is just extraordinarily moving and beautiful and it it is genuinely some of jk rowling's best writing first of all the the scene where each of them give kind of an offering of clothes to Dobby is so, so sad and touching and beautiful. And I mean, you know, the symbolism is fairly obvious, but that doesn't make it any less like affecting. I love that Ron in particular gives his socks. That's a very tender and humane Ron moment, which is good to set us up with because Ron is such a dick bag later on in this chapter. <laughs> I 
hate Ron later. So that is a very lovely Ron moment. But I think I want to stay here for a minute because a lot of the lines that are really famous from Harry Potter, first of all, some of them are in the movies and not the books, which is just honestly a travesty, I think. But I'm also a snob. But also, they tend to be very trite and they tend to be about like love and acceptance and tolerance and everybody getting along. And those are not things that I think J.K. Rowling writes about with particular depth or nuance. I think her takes on things like tolerance are actually pretty surface and kind of facile. But what J.K. Rowling writes about with just incredible emotional precision is grief and sadness and pain. And these books do that better than almost anything that I read when I was a young person. Honestly, with the exception of like Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. So there, I actually want to read. There are a couple of moments in this chapter that just like honestly like hit me right in the sort of emotional solar plexus. The steady rhythm of his arms beat time with his thoughts. Hallows, horcruxes, hallows, horcruxes. Yet he no longer burned with that weird obsessive longing. Loss and fear had snuffed it out. He felt as though he had been slapped awake again. So this is kind of a soapbox for me. This is something I talk about a lot in my non-quibbler life and my non-Harry Potter life and something I think about constantly. There's this very... Western and I think specifically kind of late capitalist American obsession with eradicating sadness and the kind of constant message that our highest ideal is to be constantly happy and that happiness is the thing that the sort of the emotional range or I guess that that happiness is kind of the ideal emotional state if you're a good, industrious person. And that really bothers me. And I feel pretty fucking gaslit a lot of the time by the idea that I should be primarily or even occasionally very, very happy because, first of all, I don't think we live in a time that engenders happiness. Maybe some joy... And occasional glimpses of, you know, like peace and togetherness. But so I guess what I want to say is that J.K. Rowling in this moment acknowledging that grief is a fortifying emotion and that it's a healthy part of a human emotional landscape was very soothing to me. And I think Harry's grief being a source of a kind of calm and clarity for him feels like more emotional depth and perception than we get from other parts of these books. Yeah, it's the way she writes about it is very lovely, but also the way she just validates that feeling is so powerful and especially powerful to read right now because we're all grieving something right now, I would say. That is like a universal experience at this particular 
moment. And that's fine. <laughs> there are things to grieve. In this chapter for Harry, there's, there's literal power in that because it's what allows him to push out Voldemort and he finds like purpose and meaning yeah he it's yeah this is like very harry's grief here is really this is like the hinge on which this whole book turns yeah in a lot of ways i think i often feel sort of gaslit by this cultural idea that your true self is your happy self and that grief or sadness or pain is a version of yourself that isn't authentic and that you should work to get away from so you can kind of return to your natural state of well-being. And I love here that Harry experiences grief as a way of actually getting closer to himself. And, and, and it's not noble. I'm not trying to say that it's noble to suffer. And Harry doesn't act as though he has experienced something that enhances his nobility. In fact, it's sort of humbling. But it allows him to just be in a way that I think is very true and in a way that I wish was more culturally acceptable. I mean, you know, not to beat this drum too much, but as a person who suffers more than occasional, I would say, bouts of pretty debilitating sadness and being constantly pathologized for that fact, you know, so even though I am really grateful for things like therapy and, you know, treatment for depression, sometimes I'm like, it's actually possible that I'm sad because shit is sad and that my true self is responding accurately to the inputs it is receiving. And I just love watching J.K. Rowling allow this character to feel his feelings and not fight them and actually sort of absorb them into his best self. Because out of this grief emerges Harry's most salient leadership qualities. Mm -hmm. Harry is really forged and made by pain and sadness. And it makes him a good person. Having lost his parents, and again, like, this is not to say that loss is the thing that should kind of, like, make you better. It's just to say that experiencing loss isn't something that we have to run away from and not let, you know, there's a lot of time, there's, I think there's just a lot of cultural messages of, like, you know, don't let it define you. Like, don't let your worst moments define you. And it's kind of like, they fucking do. Our saddest selves are often a big part of our identity formation. So, yeah, I just, when I was reading this, I was very, very, very moved. More than I normally am by these books, which I love and I'm often excited by and I think they're fun and I, I enjoy reading them immensely, but... I don't know, I was reading this passage and I was like, just very, very, very few writers for young people get to the bone of pain and sadness the way J.K. Rowling does. And I think it's because that is probably something she she understands better than 
honestly better than she understands a lot of these things, the things that these books kind of purport to be about. J.K. Rowling is extraordinarily skilled at writing about children's sadness and sadness as as healthy and normal, which I think we just honest to God need more of in every aspect of our dumb, happiness-obsessed culture. <laughs> now more than ever, hashtag. Yeah, hashtag these, now more than ever. In these uncertain times. No, but really. Uh, but it's, it's true. It's It should be not only okay, but recognized as a source of strength and power to embrace sadness. I really believe that. I get mad at the idea that I should be mostly happy. That doesn't make sense to me. So Harry does this interesting thing where he says, where he takes it upon himself to dig Dobby's grave. I want to do it properly, were the first words of which Harry was fully conscious of speaking. Not by magic. Have you got a spade? And shortly afterward, he had set to work alone digging the grave in the place that Bill had shown him at the end of the garden, between bushes. He dug with a kind of fury, relishing the manual work, glorying in the non-magic of it, for every drop of his sweat and every blister felt like a gift to the elf who had saved their lives. And he uses some pretty pointed language here. He says, I want to do it properly. And I'm still kind of mulling over what he means by that or what this kind of signifies it's interesting to see him i don't want to say put down magic but kind of speak like refer to it as like a cheat or something like inauthentic yeah no i think this does ask us interesting questions about authenticity and what kinds of labor count as labor and it's almost it you know when i first read the line i was like oh this is going to be kind of a throwaway moment but she really actually lingers here like the the authorial gaze takes a little while to watch Harry work physically to do something he could do very easily by magic. And he gives a lot of thought to the possibility that the other wizards in this scene will sort of be derisive of this choice. And you watch them one by one sort of like just inherently understand why he has to do it by hand. And yeah, it just makes me wonder about whether all wizards or lots of probably not death eater types but maybe muggle-borns or people who grow grew up around muggles specifically continue to kind of subconsciously view magic as a shortcut rather than its own thing i think this is harry's way of this is harry like literally like taking responsibility you know like in the most visceral way possible as a way of like processing this but also atoning yeah for... he does almost talk about it like it's a not it's not that it's painful but that it is a way of paying back a debt but i also think it's interesting that he doesn't use wand here because it shows i think it demonstrates harry's innate sense of justice so he needs grip hook to explain to him later that, like, wizards don't let non-magical creatures, like, carry wands. But Harry just kind of, even before Harry, like, has this information, he sort of has this, like, just a feeling that not using a wand would be, like, a tribute to Dobby. Because Dobby wouldn't be able to use a wand. Maybe there's some other magic he could do. But 
Yeah, Dobby was denied a wand in life, so Harry doesn't use a wand here. Yeah. Just a, just a thought. No, that's a, I think that's a great interpretation. I also think Harry is just a really interesting character because he is very embodied. Harry kind of physical sensations are very meaningful in Harry's life. And this sort of dignity of physical work is, I think, something that he recognizes and, and values. You know, we talk about him as being a jock, but Quidditch, the which is one of the more sort of physical and embodied things we encounter in these books is a source of joy for him. We're very intimately familiar with a specific physical pain that he experiences via his scar. So I do think that there's, I mean, I don't know if JK is this deep, but I think there is something to the kind of very like embodied and physical nature of Harry's character and characterization. And he does seem like somebody who just the act of using his body to do something hard would be kind of inherently important and meaningful. Like he does talk about the offering of his sweat. The other thought that occurred to me is that Dobby was a laborer. He was a worker. Oh, yeah. That's, and yeah. wizards are these this like, I guess you'd call them like the professional managerial class. Yeah, but no. Like they're... The house elves do fucking work they build things clean things so this is harry like working in solidarity with dobby i mean is it too flip to talk about like the sort of conundrum of essential work right now and all of the ways in which we're in like overnight have redefined as a sort of society what what work we think is essential and then we're gonna fucking flip that back over the second you know, people like us are like allowed to go outside. All of a sudden it's going to be like, oh, never mind. We're. Yeah. So I think Harry like physically laboring is an act of like, is an act of solidarity with Dobby because wizards, I mean, they don't. They're knowledge workers, essentially. Yeah. Although Harry ends up having a very kind of like out in these streets job. But I mean, he's still like. A bureaucrat. It's true. Like, he's still, like... So, like, the whole wizarding world is, like, built on... The physical labor of, yeah, of, folks like Dobby. Of, of, like, Dobby and... Winky. Yeah, grip Hook, also. Uh, true. You know, the whole, like, infrastructure of the wizarding world is, like, held up by these folks. So it's, like... And then I, I don't think it's an accident that, of course, then... It's not... An, obviously, it's not an accident. And then, of course, after Harry commits this act of solidarity, he... Is thinking about how the funeral is so unlike Dumbledore's. Yeah, again, that's a really lovely scene. And Harry is just maturing into a really a justice-oriented person in a way that I, again, I don't think I saw as a younger person reading these books. But he's got, he's got flashes of real insight about, like, inequality, which I really appreciate because, you know, we kind of touched on this in the last episode, but... That's really the kind of leadership you want from a kind of someone who we could perceive as a little bit of a meathead. Yeah. And I mean, the guy who goes on to become basically the wizard attorney general or whatever. Yeah. You know. Not the worst. (laughs) The other thing that's really interesting here is the Deathly Hallows does this really wonderful and interesting thing with Harry and Dumbledore's relationship. And Dumbledore is a character 
where you get this really kind of prismatic view of Dumbledore. And, you know, we've spent, I guess I would say probably five and a half books with kind of almost like stock character Dumbledore. He's gotten a little complex as we go. And obviously you and I have pretty distinctive quibbles about his choices from book (laughs) one. But he is kind of like wise, twinkly-eyed. Quirkier Gandalf. Yeah, he is. I mean, Gandalf's quirky as hell. But Dumbledore takes it like one notch like higher. It's true. But now we've gotten these a, a few interesting turns in a row of Dumbledore's character because he was sort of deified right after his death, like kind of deified and ennobled and made, you know, almost like sanctified. And then... He gets we, canceled. He gets fucking canceled. Yeah. No, but I, I want to, you know, I want to be a little more nuanced than that. I want to say that he, you know, we start to explore like the skeletons in his closet and, and Harry starts to mistrust... Dumbledore's instincts which is a first and now we've turned it again where Harry is able to acknowledge the complexities in Dumbledore's character and realize that Dumbledore's insights were if anything kind of like more spot on and valuable than Harry even realized when he was sort of obsessed with Dumbledore as like a Gandalf figure yeah so I love that Harry's relationship with Dumbledore keeps kind of turning on this axis and you get this just like deepening of Harry's understanding like that moment when he's like oh he knew what was gonna happen like he was you know 30 steps ahead of us months before he died and anyway I think that's cool I also it sort of caused me to go back and give more consideration to the characters that jk rowling chooses to have die up to this point because this relationship couldn't develop in this way without dumbledore being dead yeah it's really important that dumbledore die in book six not for shock value and i think the first time i got through the series i thought this was a primarily shock value choice and now i'm seeing dumbledore was unknowable as a living person we can only know him sort of after death and she sort of throws us a bone where Harry does get to have kind of one last conversation with a with an embodied Dumbledore but so I you know and then I kind of went back and I was like yeah all of these characters that die kind of have to die for the the themes to ripen in these books obviously we're going to talk a ton about Cedric's death when we get to Cursed Child (laughs) which despite being fucking non-canonical in a lot of ways does do really interesting things with the death of Cedric Diggory yeah, I actually have weirdly positive feelings about certain aspects of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, but mostly they're thematic. Yeah, no, she does interesting thematic things and fucking bollocks plot things. <laughs> it's also interesting to think about Dumbledore possessing the Elder Wand for decades and kind of being the only wizard to exercise any restraint as the master of the Elder Wand. Seriously. Which does make me like him more, I will say. He was worthy. I think he genuinely was. It's like even Gandalf knew he couldn't fucking carry the ring around. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. But Dumbledore actually does manage to just like low-key, I don't know, like conjure fucking lemon drops with the most powerful wand in history. (laughs) Wait, is the Elder Wand 
his like everyday wand. I'm pretty sure. That's honestly wild. I love, he uses, he takes the elder wand. I hadn't even thought about this and primarily uses it to conjure like armchairs. The amount of whimsy. armchairs. The like, he like sort of perfects whimsy with the most powerful wand in the history of wizarding. Maybe that's why nobody comes for him until like Lovo and sends Draco after him I don't or think, whatever. No, people don't know it. People don't know about that. No, the, but like, if he'd been out here using the Elder Wand in this like aggro way that invites true. challenge, mm. I think the fact mm. that Dumbledore was whimsical as fuck with the Elder Wand protected him from challengers. Yeah, well, it also made people, yeah, gave people a false sense of security. But I, I, I actually adore that Dumbledore was like, I'm going to die with this bitch. <laughs> like not in a violent well he end up, ends up having a violent death but yeah he makes a lot of candy with the elder wand yeah and a lot of like really cute other shit so nobody suspects that the elder wand because they're like I, this thing just made like a bunch of purple sleeping bags so <laughs> we have to start a long and complicated journey here which is talking about grip hook if there was a wizard of whom I would believe that they did not seek personal gain, said Griphook finally, it would be you, Harry Potter. Goblins and elves are not used to the protection or the respect that you have shown this night. Not from wand carriers. Wand carriers? repeated Harry. The phrase fell oddly upon his ears as his scar prickled, as Voldemort turned his thoughts northward and as Harry burned to question Ollivander next door. The right to carry a wand, said the goblin quietly, has long been contested between wizards and goblins. Well, goblins can do magic without ones, said Ron. That is immaterial. Wizards refuse to share the secrets of wand law with other magical beings. They deny us the possibility of extending our powers. Well, goblins won't share any of their magic either, said Ron. You won't tell us how to make swords and armor the way you do. Goblins know how to work metal in a way wizards have never. It doesn't matter, said Harry, noting Griphook's rising color. We've talked about goblins like 90 episodes ago, right? Yeah. Did we touch on... The fact that this is a profoundly anti-Semitic portrayal pretty explicitly. <laughs> I think we started, but I think we were a little more timid 90 episodes ago. That's, yeah. I don't think we went as hard on episode four. We actually would have talked about Grip Hook in episode one. Oh my God. I'm pretty sure because we did the first five chapters and Gringotts was like chapter five when okay. he gets to Gringotts. We used to do five chapters at a time for like a hot minute. Yeah, that sucked. <laughs> Now one at a time we can barely, barely contain yeah. in two hours. Completely unsustainable. Okay, so I think we've covered the fact, at some point, I'm sure we've covered the fact that goblins are kind of swarthy fellows with long fingers. And I don't think, I don't think she ever uses, I couldn't find any descriptions of their noses, but they definitely have like hook noses in the movies. Oh yeah. No, yeah. movie goblins like, are the, like, Basically Nazi propaganda. <laughs> like the movie goblins are unconscionably bad. So we've got this we've got this race of creatures 
who are they're like part of the wizarding world but not really and they're the only ones allowed to handle money and also they get really fucking pissed if you don't pay them back they take a uh, pound of flesh if you will from um ludo Bagman. we haven't talked about him in a while oh man where is he is he dead i think the goblins took carved their, some took, pieces out of they him took their pound Shylock of flesh. style yeah woof so i just it's like this is so bad <laughs> that I, I i it's one of those moments with with jk rowling where you're like are you outsmarting me and trying to do something interesting or is this just awful i mean she's sympathetic toward the plight of the goblins nah. but I, I don't think so she portrays grub hook as profoundly amoral yeah like yeah, Griphook you're right is definitely not a good guy and she actually like she has some of her more sort of like trustworthy characters kind of question grip hook's narrative of oppression and that goes unchallenged so no this portrayal is it's so i mean my god excuse the expression here but it's like so on the nose (laughs) that (laughs) i i just i have a lot of trouble imagining making this series of choices as an author and not especially as a british author like ew i mean even the name grip hook like maybe that's where i'm getting the kind of hook nose thing from but like oh yeah yeah, you're right oh i mean even the name but the name kind of grip hook evokes this kind of grasping miserly but also dangerous it does and there's also this you know this current of that i think again is just so perfectly aligned with the worst anti-semitic tropes of Goblins kind of like deliberately withholding their knowledge from, you know, the fair wizarding race in order to like. For unknown designs or whatever. For like sinister unknown designs. And like there is, I mean, Ron even expresses this sense that goblins like owe wizards access to their craftsmanship and that it's like fucked up that goblins have like secrets from wizards you know that yeah the amorality the secretiveness the appearance like all of it is so gross and i'm sorry but we have to talk about wands as penises here because wandlessness and like the idea of the like wand bearer not bearer what does he call it wand carriers the idea of wand carriers again is so like explicitly about emasculation that I like have a lot of questions about J.K. Rowling's like authorial intent here. Like this is about dicks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wands are just not not about dicks. <laughs> and I think emasculation is a really key part of lots and lots of kinds of bigotry and oppression mostly by white men throughout history it's part Um, of systems of oppression but i think it is specifically part of anti-semitism and yeah we just grip hook is talking about something that's so obviously analogous to some of the worst thoughts and acts of muggle kind but still grip hooks like kind of the shifty one yeah 
it's not deftly handled, I would say, to say the least. You know, she kind of, she taps into some elementary things about how systems of oppression work, where there's this paternal element of the wizarding world where they have this like goblin liaison office that's supposed to like manage them. And, but at the same time, goblins are like, can't be trusted to have like wands. Cause like, what if they take over everything? Uh, I assume that's why they don't let them have the wands cause they're afraid of goblins. So at the same, they're like wizards simultaneously treat them as childlike. And yet also this existential threat which this is kind of breaking our particular theme, but one of the best books I read last year is called Stamped by the is called Stamped from the Beginning, which is actually it's like a totally extraordinary kind of intellectual history of the formation of racist and anti-racist thought. Um, it's by Ibram X. Kendi. He's amazing. And he writes very vividly and throughout the book about the duality of like hyper sexualization and emasculation of black men and I there's a similar sense of like this the the kind of double-edged fear of kind of like invasive and powerful others with yeah paternalism emasculation kind of subjugation and they're like we also, we need to like t- care for them and fear them simultaneously, but they're never equals. I just recommend that book in general, but it was that particular kind of like intellectual development was really interesting to me. And I think is very applicable to the goblins in particular. Because house elves are like just entirely disenfranchised. And there's not even an acknowledgement among most kind of like wizard supremacists of the existence of house elf magic. But goblins do occupy this really interesting liminal space of both controlled and greatly feared and admired to some extent. And also valued. Right. But it's like an admiration that's like tinged with like, we we want their shit. Right. Like we're not interested in like their humanity or even sort of their culture or traditions or what they have to offer as beings. But like we want their treasure. Like, we just want their shit. And, I mean, God, Their I just, art? Their... No, but it's not. It's, well, yeah. Yeah, part, their movies, their... Somebody... The, isn't Hufflepuff's Cup goblin made? I think Well, she, they mention. I mean, we do. There are, like, really interesting things to talk about. About just sort of, like, antiquities looting, basically. Right. And, like, all of the times that, like, imperialists have stolen artifacts from other cultures and sort of I don't know enough about like art history to be very good on this subject but we can brush it up before uh, the Green Gods chapter because uh, we're definitely going to get into more about who owns yeah artifact ownership is really important but I mean just the money lender thing again it's just like so obvious that it's like (laughs) yuck yeah I I don't know so like she taps into she some of it is, she never bats a thousand, right? But who does? Um, okay, but she's batting like five here. Oh, I that'd, be a, say. that'd be an all-star. Oh. That'd be like the greatest no, batter ever. Point oh five. Oh, like yeah. five out of a thousand. <laughs> five out of a thousand. Yeah, that'd be Not pretty 500. shitty. Not 500. That'd be a sh- pretty shitty batting no. average. Five hits 
out of 1,000. <laughs> That's what batting averages are, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. That, I'm proud of myself know. for knowing that. Um, this particular portrayal is a low point for J.K. Rowling's choices. I gotta say. Because the thing she does is, it's kind of like what we talked about with Fenrir and Lupin. She sort of borrows from this kind of like random stew of stereotypes and experiences, but she doesn't ever push back on them enough to be making a point about like justice. She's just sort of like using them for her own ends. Like, she's not making a point about anti-Semitism in this book. She's just making real fucking anti-Semitic goblins. Also, literally the use of, I mean, goblins are gross. Like, not just in Harry Potter, but that's not a positive magical creature word in any sort of fantasy universe. Like, goblins are never like chill and house elves are pretty weird looking too and they're kind of silly and like almost minstrelly in some cases even dobby so she's sort of i don't know she's she's like like, very it's like very progressive for like 1950 she's like okay let's be nice to all these different people but like it's not even progressed no there were actual that's the thing that bothers me though like of their time thing they were like actual progressives in the 50s yeah no i'm but you know what i mean right she is yeah she's being racist in a slightly less malignant way than she could be i guess but it's still (laughs) yeah she's very ron weasley oh my god we got to talk about ron because like boo she's being very ron weasley she's like ron is the total ron's like the total like moderate liberal. Griphook pretty casually mentions the fact. Actually, he just says a straight up fact. He's like, "Yeah, goblins get a pretty raw deal. We're not allowed to carry wands." And and Ron gets like super defensive. Yeah, he's so and, fragile. Like, you saw this like what about? He's like, "Oh yeah, well what about uh, what about like you don't share your like magic with us?" Oh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah, no, <laughs> it's he's yeah, he's fragile. Like, Ron is, Ron just wants the Wizarding World reformed, like, a little bit. He doesn't want, like... Revolution. Radical change. Ron wants things to go back to normal for him. Mm-hmm. You know? Which means being bad for most creatures, and honestly, for, like, Hermione. Yeah. Ron wants a return to normalcy, as opposed to, like, a total sort of, like, re... Like, a remaking of the world for like a more just future. And it's interesting to see the trio like challenged on that by Griphook because he said Griphook basically says this war isn't even about like you guys. Yeah. Like you don't you don't even have a part in this. Like Well, and it is interesting to see Hermione do a little bit of a an oppression Olympics with him where she's like, "Well, I'm just as persecuted as you." And it's like, "Girl, usually you're pretty on point with this stuff, although spew is really problematic." But like Hermione has, like, a good sense of this stuff, I think, innately. But it's like, you are allowed to have a wand. You are allowed to go to Hogwarts, except under, like, the very, very, very worst version of this. They are actually killing Muggleborns, which... So I guess, sure, under the Voldemort administration, like, Hermione is in a lot of trouble. 
But Grip Hook is kind of like, eh, like <laughs> you're still treated as like human. She wins Grip Hook over a little bit. Yeah, so does Harry, honestly. It's actually really fascinating to watch Grip Hook try to figure out Harry's like kind of good guy shtick and wonder whether to trust it. I find that kind of a compelling inner war that he has. Yeah, I mean, there's something that rings true in this scene about the difficulty of building like intersectional movements. Because oh, yeah. there's just not that much trust for good reason in Grip Hook's case. Yeah, no, the mistrust and also I think it's, well, we know for ourselves that it's really hard to identify and stick to shared aims without getting into kind of, you know, divisive rhetoric. But also, like, I don't really believe in, like, a can't-we-all-get-along approach. So, I don't know. This is complicated. But Griphook is a great character. It's just the the series of really icky and offensive stereotypes she's leaning on to craft this character are honestly kind of shocking. It sits a little uncomfortably, at best. A little, yeah. I would say. I agree. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Ollivander and like wand lore, which is pretty interesting here. I have one quick quibble here. Maybe it'll be a long quibble. Who knows? How does Ollivander not know about the Deathly Hallows? I think very few people do. Isn't our whole thing that Xenophilius is among an extremely small like clutch of people... It's in Beetle the Bard. I, I guess know. they don't call them the Deathly Hallows in Beetle the Bard. No, it's just a kid's story. I just, I can't quite grok how obscure the whole Deathly Hallows thing is. I guess extremely obscure if Ollivander has studied everything to know about the Elder Wand and somehow never came across this connection to the Deathly Hallows. That just doesn't ring true for me. Well, okay. Think about a pre-Dan Brown world and somebody starts talking about like the Mary Magdalene and Jesus's kid and the Knights Templar and all this shit. Like, yeah, but if you were like a subject expert, you would at least be like aware of it, you know? That's fair. Even if like you don't the believe conspiracy in it, theories. you would like know, you would know people thought that like the Holy Grail was real. Yeah. If you were an expert on like biblical artifacts. Okay, yeah. no, I take your point. You're know. right. That doesn't make any sense. I just like, that seems weird. Yeah, no, not to have even heard of them. So, Greg... Yeah, fucking Greg. Big dummy. <laughs> Big. Why would you tell people you had the Elder Wand? Gre- why would you, especially why would you tell people you had the Elder Wand when Grit, when like a budding dark wizard is just like out here telling us he's a budding dark wizard? Like Grindelwald is like, I'm on the up and up. And Greg is like, that's cool. Have I got a marketing ploy for you. I love that Greg Greg gets the Elder Wand, the most powerful wand ever made, the fucking, like, a literal Deathly Hollow, and he's like, sick. This is going to be great ad copy. Yeah. He uses exactly. it for advertising. <laughs> Which doesn't even make sense because it's not like he made it. He just has it. We see suggests that... The implication is that he's, like, studying its qualities and he's going to, like... Oh, that's true. ...make other Elder Wands. Even that doesn't seem very valid. Yeah, Greg is a... He uses it as, like, spawn con. Greg is an entire dumbass. So (laughs) certainly he doesn't deserve to die, but he did not do himself any favors with these particular choices. Ollivander, again, it's interesting that we're coming back into contact. Maybe this is deliberate. I don't know. Is she this good? That 
Grip Hook and Ollivander are two of the first magical characters we meet other than Hagrid. Oh, I think she and is this good. She's great at tying up threads it's true. and like making connections. Her, her callback game is on yeah. point. Okay, you're right. Yes. The this con- is this is amazing cuz like coming back to a scene in which both Grip Hook and Ollivander make an important appearance and like share like vital information after being yeah, like characters like 4 and 5 of the magical world that Harry meets is is really fun. Yeah, the connections with Sorcerer's Stone are one of the most satisfying things about reading this book. It's yeah. true. We come when full circle in a lot of places. J.K. Rowling. You're right. She can plot like a motherfucker. Knows her fucking business. It's true. She gets no, it done. You're right. She. These are. This is a, a a beautifully executed callback to chapter. Four Including the fact that we learn about Grindelwald from, yeah, that chocolate frog card. Yeah. And it becomes critical in book seven. It's beautiful. I love that. You're right. She's she's killer at a callback. So, but when we met him first, we talked about Ollivander being interestingly kind of disinterested in good and evil and really into just how powerful a wand can be. The Dark Lord no longer seeks the Elder Wand only for your destruction, Mr. Potter. He is determined to possess it because he believes it will make him truly invulnerable. And will it? The owner of the Elder Wand must always fear attack, said Ollivander. But the idea of the Dark Lord in possession of the Death Stick is, I must admit, formidable. Harry was suddenly reminded of how he had been unsure when they first met of how much he liked Ollivander. Even now, having been tortured and imprisoned by Voldemort, the idea of the dark wizard in possession of this wand seemed to enthrall him as much as it repulsed him. He's got this professional interest in it, and that can, like, take you into perilous waters if you don't, like, have a moral compass. Yeah, or if you... If you think that sort of... Because I would say wand lore is actually... It's got some kind of science elements to it. You know, something interesting like a theoretical physics where you're sort of figuring out over like like a really long time why things work, but you sort of know that they do in a really, in both mysterious but predictable ways. Right. Um, yeah, it sort of does make me think of like, the the coolest strains of like theoretical physics but we do get this this particular kind of scientist for whom the inquiry supersedes all kind of like moral quandaries and you know I think a thing that has happened that I would say is mostly positive as part of it's annoying that this is progressivism because it means that there are lots of people that are just like, the world isn't heating up. But, okay, as part of a, a certain kind of progressivism is like a like the hashtag we believe science thing, which sort of positions science as like a moral good. Yeah, science is not... It's not good or bad. It's, it's actually really deliberately outside of those realms like the reason there are scientific ethicists is because scientific inquiry is not that concerned with ethics it's just answering questions and the answers don't have to be like morally good or morally evil they're looking for like truth 
And so, you know, Ollivander reminds me to some extent of like, like a physicist, like a kind of a pure physicist working on like the atom bomb. Where it's like there's a certain amount of curiosity about like how much power you can get out of this baby. And like what you do with that power is sort of a secondary question. I mean, in fairness, Ollivander doesn't build a super weapon. But yeah, he does have that flicker of like, damn, what if Voldemort did get the Elder Wand? That, well, he's like, that'd be terrible. Ollivander builds. It'd be pretty fucking interesting. He builds thousands of super weapons. It's not like he builds wands that can't kill people. Oh, damn. I guess you're right. No, Ollivander builds things that are inherently and pretty easily weapons. They're not only weapons, which is one of the things that's most interesting about wands is like the multifunctionality means that like are, is Ollivander responsible for the fact that wands are among other things like death machines? Like kind of no, but he's interested in the power to kill of wands as much as he's interested in any other aspect of the power of wands. Right. And it's interesting that he's building these things that he doesn't quite have control over. That he doesn't really understand. I think this is pretty cool. He he understands yet doesn't fully grasp like all the forces at work. Because the wands, they have this personality after he's like made them. Because he's, you know, the wand chooses the wizard and they have like allegiances and there's like he doesn't really fucking understand like why Harry and Lovo's wand has this connection so but the most important thing to him in the world is that inquiry yeah and the sort of the outcomes are 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 a little bit secondary like the collateral damage he is sort of I think he sort of thinks of himself as like above I don't think he wants bad things to happen but he has a dark he has a dark fascination it's true um yeah so which again I just which I, I think you be, would. Yeah. You know? It's like if you made the Large Hadron Collider, you'd be like, this, I hope it doesn't blow up the world. But that would be interesting. But like, it wow, would, that'd be fucking crazy if it did. It would did. do something Not even blow crazier up the world, than blow Like up create the world. a black hole or something. It would do something way wilder <laughs> than just a big, big explosion. Yeah. It probably Which, won't like, honestly, suck us into a time warp, but eh, it might. I'm a little bit hoping that it does that, <laughs> honestly. It already has. And now we're in our current yeah, reality. That's what actually has yeah. happened to us. Well, and so again, I, this is not, I, certainly I'm not in any way suggesting that science is bad. I'm just saying that science isn't primarily meant to like be nice or like help. It's supposed to help us learn, but it's not necessarily supposed to help us like be like good nice people to each other who like you know it's like deeper and more complicated and like less black and white than that right which is a cool thing about science but also gives us an Ollivander who's like yeah I'm a little bit curious to see what Lord Voldemort (laughs) could do with the Elder Wand like sue me I think like from a wand lore perspective I would like to study that shit (laughs) Um, but I, you know, the other thing, I think what Ollivander also taps into is that he's basically like, no, nobody's good or bad. Anybody with this much power is going to do something fucked up with it. And even, Vol- I mean, even Dumbledore, who like, doesn't actually like slaughter people with the Elder Wand. Like he does some weird, bad shit with he his power. He makes some morally complicated he, decisions. So yeah, no, Ollivander's like, you guys don't have any idea what you would be like with this particular tool. Because you just... Who knows? What would it feel like to be all-powerful? I don't know. Probably you would do some very fucked up stuff. (laughs) 
I think. Or you would just put it on a billboard. Yeah, if you're Greg, you're... (laughs) If you're Greg, you use it to cut advertisements. Just a dumbass. What a mundane... I can't even think of a more mundane thing to use. But honestly, that's probably the level of creativity that a lot of us would show. True. (laughs) Greg is... Greg's, that's what the Weasley twins might do. No, the Weasley twins would do something honestly like scarier and smarter. They make some pretty scary products. Terrible, but great and hilarious. Yeah. And like, yada, da, 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 da. <laughs> but also real fucked. Speaking of people who are idiots, Voldemort is like, LOL, Dumbledore, you're so stupid. Why did you make it this easy? And it's like, it's a trap, yeah, bud. Fucking. Yeah, think about that. Repeat in your head what you're saying to yourself right now, Lovo. Like, Why is this so easy? His tomb isn't even magically sealed. <laughs> He's just like, oh, here's the Elder Wand. Like, wonder why Dumbledore left this lying around. And it's like, probably for a reason, bud. But to be fair, Voldemort still doesn't know that Dumbledore knows about the Horcruxes. Mm. And Voldemort doesn't know about the Hallows. That's true. But I think only Dumbledore in the whole universe and weirdly now Harry, Ron and Hermione sort of possesses both of those pieces of the puzzle. When Dumbledore dies, he's the only person that knows about the Hallows and the Horcruxes and the sort of like melding. Dumbledore is very smart. We can sit here and give him that. I think Dumbledore also knows that... It was very smart to have himself buried with the Elder Wand because like Lovo's like so obsessed with like, I'm using scare quotes, conquering death that he's not going to be thinking about anything else at this moment. Like it's interesting that he literally like steals this from a grave and it's what seals his fate. Well, the other thing is, I mean, Dumbledore is being very clever here in that he knows that if Voldemort steals the Elder Wand from a corpse, he can't possess it because he didn't take it by force. Yeah. Like, he doesn't actually control it. And Voldemort seems to have sort of, like, missed that memo. Because Dumbledore knows that if if Voldemort sort of sneaky steals the Elder Wand rather than overpower the wizard. Because, like, the other thing is Voldemort didn't fucking kill Dumbledore. As we will get to in the dumbest part of the whole series maybe the fine print the like weird <laughs> Malfoy situation but I mean okay that is annoying but it is cool for Dumbledore to be like okay he's gonna come steal this shit because he cannot help himself and he is not going to realize that he is not its master because he's just like not paying attention to the details Voldemort not a detail-oriented guy no uh he's a really a, a blue sky a black sky thinker. <laughs> Dark He's sky a thinker. Very, very scary skull in the sky thinker. Who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Fleur Delacour. Uh I know Harry has to like get up in her face because she's like, look, everybody's like seriously injured. Like we have some folks on the brink of like critical care here. Uh but I like how she's like this battlefield nurse, like Florence Nightingale character in this chapter. <laughs> that was very uh, good. Florence seriously underrated. Oh yeah, she is actually another one of those characters who is unsung till the very end. Because it's not actually a shocking transition that she's now this like war medic. She was a freaking tri wizard. I know. Champion. Even I often think of her as like primarily cute she fought a dragon yeah no she's she's cool and brave and smart and like 
very good at this particular task. Uh, she's like a good spouse too. Yeah. She's just like so ride or die. Fleur's amazing. Mine is Bill. Um, honestly, for similar reasons, he's just like set up a really effective kind of like resistance hideout situation. And I like his scars. I keep forgetting. And then Harry describes it and you're like, oh, that's right. He got fucked up by Fenrir. Yeah. No, they're just, they're a, they're an underrated couple. Power couple. Yeah. Wizarding power couple they play a really important role here and and i think we sort of forget them and they're totally chill with letting harry just bury someone in their front yard (laughs) um they also seem to be they seem to have a really good marriage so they might be my actual hashtag marriage goals in this whole series nobody else's marriage seems that great seems like they have really good sex uh oh i'm sure they do do you think he howls now i wonder if he's got just enough werewolf that he's like more of a freak (laughs) <laughs> Molly and Arthur have a nice marriage too but Bill and Fleur getting it done did Percy have a breakup with Penelope Clearwater or is that still a thing no I'm sure they broke up they were together when they were like 13 no one seems to break up with their high school sweethearts in this hopefully Penelope Clearwater is like enough has like a head on her shoulders to be like well this guy's now like a fucking what's his name in Sound of Music Rolf This guy is now a Rolf-style baby Nazi, so I think I'm out. (laughs) This week's episode is brought to you by Shell Cottage. When you're here, you're family. When you're here, you're family, yeah. We're going to use that for everyone. Shell Cottage and Mortuary. Oh, God. You'll have a shell of a time. Yeah. At Shell Cottage. You got there. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Very, very good. Very, very fun. I guess Dan Radcliffe is also reading them from... He read chapter one, but they're doing like different... Dan Radcliffe read chapter one on wizardingworld.com. I don't know what the dot is. Wizardingworld.ministry. Yeah, it's not called Pottermore anymore. It's Wizarding World. This change happened a long time ago. Yeah, Dan Radcliffe read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter 1. And then I think Eddie Redmayne did one. Um, he has a weird face. Well, that That's a mean thing to say. Whoa! Way to come at Newt's commander so hard. Oh god, I forgot. I was like, what does he have to do with this shit? I was like, wow. You are like, so disconnected from the fandom that you're like, who's Eddie Redmayne? What's his Potter significance? I, he's like the main deal now. Ew. I mean, he's fine. I just, I don't want to think about Newt's commander another minute. All of which is to say that is actually, that's like cool and cute, but Jim Dale does so many voices and honestly, like leave it to the professionals. Listen to these audiobooks. They're great. You can find us on social media at Quibbler Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're doing our thing, all those places um, in fits and bursts, as is the style of this podcast. But you can send us DMs and stuff. You can email us, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe if the platform you prefer does that. Same thing with rating and reviewing. Have at it if you'd like. We've gotten some very kind reviews lately. And, you know, we read them and we love them. We read the mean ones too. And we are switching newsletter services because um, we found one that we like better and looks prettier. So... If you are already a Tiny Letter subscriber, 
don't worry about it. We can just move you over. But if you would, from here on out, like to subscribe to the newsletter, uh, which is quite fun and doesn't come often enough to be annoying, you can go to quibblerpodcast.substack.com. That's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. Quibblerpodcast.substack.com. That's where the newsletter is going to live from now on. Uh, Sign up if you haven't. Next time, this is actually the place where the first movie ends. So we're going to be doing a a mid-season movie mini. And then after that, we're reading the chapter called Shell Cottage. So watch along if you feel like it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, amigos. I think we ought to say something, piped up Luna. She turned and looked expectantly at Bron, who cleared his throat and said in a thick voice, He was a a man who loved a good sweater, I'm told. And, And he loved the feel of a big tool in his hand. Am I right, Bob? Right said Harry. Well, I need some help, Griphook, and you can give it to me. The goblin made no sign of encouragement, but continued to frown at Harry as though he had never seen anything like him. I need to break into a Gringotts vault. One last long grift, huh? Okay, I'm in. But one rule. Anybody gets hurt during the score, we leave them behind to die. Now... Who are you and what are we doing?